Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast where a bunch of writers sit around drinking and talking about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Today's hosting committee is Chaz and Karen Brinchley and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 61, Interview with Carol Berg. Hi, Carol. Welcome to our podcast. Hi. Thank you for having me. This is exciting because... I have to tell a little bit of the story of how I had to reach out and and invite her in particular. And it started in a hockey room locker room, as many of my stories do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The girls sat around the hockey locker room saying, one girl's like, I need to know what to read next. And there were two names that just leapt to mind. And over half of the women there from both teams were like, well, you have to read Elizabeth Moon and you have to read Carol Berg. And... And they, and they needed to know why, and then it went on and on and on. But basically, I needed you to know, for a start, you're, you have a large fan following within women's hockey in Northern California Women's Hockey League. So That is awesome. That is awesome. <laughs> Especially since my son, who lives in Los Angeles, plays lab hockey down there. Nobody in my family ever played hockey because I grew up in Texas, and you know, and then we were in Colorado, and... There's a little hockey here, but not like, you know, rabbit hockey. But he got involved um, playing hockey, and I said, I can't believe any of my family ever did that. So it, I, there's a hockey connection here, it too. It sucks I, I you in. What is lab hockey? Lab hockey is where you have a bunch of engineers who <clears throat> like to um, expend their energy um, in going around whacking pucks with sticks. And Andrew said he loved it. He started actually when he was at University of Colorado, and he was uh, in uh, getting his master's degree. And and uh, he started playing there with people who come from the lab, and then they go play hockey. And he said the best thing was he learned he could eat anything he wanted um, as long as he was playing hockey and he, without gaining an ounce. So he thought that was a great incentive to play hockey it burns over 600 calories an hour yeah yeah he just he loves it and and then he he loves the skating and such too but but lab is just a bunch of engineers who get out there and schedule games and have their own little leagues yeah good for them good for them so you started writing after you got a degree and were a programmer for a while right you were um yes i actually was i'm a very late bloomer i i read books my whole life, and um, I never imagined in the world that I could ever write a book that anybody would write one. How would you do that? You'd have to know, you know, you'd have to know about foreshadowing, and you would have to know about <laughs> symbolism, and you would have to know about... Not demonstrably. I've read a lot of books. That is just not true. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, I, I just, I was just sure that you would have to know all those things, and so, so I never even considered writing as a career until... I met a very good friend, actually the friend who where I was this afternoon helping her move, and which is, is going to kill me because she's the one who actually got me started writing by uh, going out to lunch and talking about books with me. So, yeah. Did you start on uh, the short story method to, into novels, or did you just plunge right into the deep end? Well, what happened was we were at lunch, and we were reading um, a book uh, that was formatted as, as a series of letters between two people. And it was a fantasy novel. We were both on a big fantasy reading binge, though we both read pretty much everything. But, um, 
and we said, you know, I said, well, that's, you know, it was an interesting way to write a book, but, uh, and, and she told me for just out of the blue, she said, you know, I've always wanted to be a writer, and I said, I could never do that, and uh, she said, you know what, it would be, what would be fun to do is if we each took a character and wrote letters to each other, like in this book, and we could just write letters to each other and send them by email, and, and uh, then we, you know, make a story out of it. And she says, I want to be a writer eventually, and it would help me practice my writing. And I said, well, well, that would be kind of fun to do. Um, my kids were getting where they didn't need, you know, every moment supervision when I got home from work or anything like that. So, so we went back to work, and that evening before I went home, I, I told her I would write the first letter. And so... Um, I got back to work, and I was, at the end of the day, I was having some software build, which in those days took kind of a long, much longer time than it does now, but, um, and I, I started typing this letter, and we had just, all, the only thing we had agreed on was that we were sisters, that she was the younger sister, I was the older sister, and I started writing this letter, and before I knew it, I had 20 pages. <laughs> So there was and a lot to say in an epistolary fashion. <laughs> I said, what is, what is this? Where did that come from? And so I looked it over and I printed it because at that time I actually didn't have a computer at home because I said I spend all day, you know, I'm a software engineer. I spend all the day on a computer and why would I need one at home? Mm. So I, but I printed it and I brought it home and that evening after dinner and homework and, you know, everybody was in bed, the house was quiet and I picked up those pages and started to read them and I thought, ew, this, that's really bad. And I said, it's so purple, it's so this and I started scribbling all over it and I took it in the next morning and before I started working, I typed it, you know, I edited it and with all these changes I made. And I looked at it and I said, you know, that looks, that's way better. And I did the same thing. I printed it. I took it home. And by the time I got to reading it that night, I went, ew, oh, this is just silly. You know, why would she do that? And so began my something like an eight-year writing class. The thing is, after writing that first letter, it, was, it, wasn't, it, it took me a few days before I stopped saying ew and, and decided it was time to send it. So I sent it. But, and while I was waiting for her to get back, you know, with her letter, I started writing some more, and I, I didn't quit. I have not quit since that, <laughs> since that week when that started. The levees um, broke, huh? This year, this year, this, um, since March, I, I turned in my last book April 10th, and since then I really have not written much new stuff. Well, I haven't written anything new, really, and since then, and that's the longest period since that week when I started <laughs> writing those letters. Um, so, how long have you been writing then? Well, let's see. It was um, I wrote for about um, eight years, and then uh, I started a new book in 1998. So that would have been like 98. Um, that I started something new, and I, I felt like after these eight years of writing, all of a sudden I, I got it. Um, I started this story about a man getting, the story opens, he's being thrown out of prison, and he's had this long, terrible imprisonment, and um, he still doesn't know why 
he was put in prison. He was told he had to be, he was a musician, a singer, and uh, he uh, didn't know why. He just was told he had to be silent for seven years. Well, it took him seven years before he could actually stop singing, and, and then uh, 10 years, and then it was seven until he had to be silent for this seven years. So it had been 17-year imprisonment, and he didn't know why. And that was all I knew about that story, really, at the beginning. And, and so I started writing it. But as I wrote it, I felt like I had gotten into his head. That before that, I felt like I was at an arm's length from my characters. And, but all of a sudden, I felt like I, I knew that so many, you know, the, the great trope of, of you've had something like that happen to you. You get out of prison, and the only thing you can think of is finding out why and getting revenge and I said no 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 this guy all he wants to do is to make sure whatever that mistake was that he made that he doesn't do it again so they can't put him back that's what he was thinking about and anyway so I started writing this and I told this same friend who had gotten me started writing I said I've got this new thing and I think it's better than anything I've done before and she read the first few chapters and she said which is all I had at that point. And she said, yes, this is. She said, I really think we need to learn something about the publishing business. <laughs> and so we went. Uh, it was a convenient time. That was um, early in the spring of 1998. And we knew that there was a writer's conference down in Colorado Springs, um, the Pike Speak Writer's Conference. And um, I knew it had a pretty good reputation. And so I said, it was, Let's, why don't we go? And so we went and I mean I walked into the door with these 400 people all talking you know and I am extremely an extreme introvert but I said <clears throat> I knew right away I said these are my people here excellent and you know they're all introverts really yes 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 I learned that very quickly and and um, within a year and a half I had a three book deal with Penguin. <laughs> so did you go through the finding an agent route? Because this is Song of the Beast, right? For those that aren't That's familiar Song of the with Beast, it. Yes. And um, actually what happened was I, that year, um, Song of the Beast wasn't done yet, that first year, uh, but I did read the beginning of one of the pieces. I, I'd written, you know, I had maybe seven manuscripts that I'd written that I had never even I'd never sent them anywhere. For one thing, it wasn't as easy as it is now, which is good because some of they were really not all that great. But I, I read the opening for Pat Labruto, who was then a consulting editor with somebody. Um, and he said, so I was in this little round table on a Friday afternoon at a writer's conference where you could read the opening three pages or whatever of your work you and 10 other people or something. And I read the opening and I was, you know, I was so nervous. You know, it feels like you're going to slit your chest open and expose it for the whole world to see. And it was, I was, I didn't know what I was going to read. And I, but I picked one of my stories that I thought I had a pretty good opening. And um, I, once I started reading, I was fine because I was in my character's head. And, and when I finished Pat, Labruto said, well, if the rest of the story holds up to that, you should be looking for an agent. And I said, well, that's pretty exciting to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
And so by the next year, um, I knew that story wasn't ready for anything, and I didn't know how to look for an agent, though I listened to some workshops and it told me some more about it. But by the next year, the same conference, um, I, I read up on the agent. There were agents who were there, and there were editors there. There was an editor there from Penguin that next year. And so by that time, I had started another new book, uh, which was Transformation. I had written probably half of it by that. And I signed up for another one of these Friday afternoon sessions. And um, uh, I didn't think the editor liked it because uh, she didn't say very much. But I had a little 10-minute pitch appointment with her the next day that I almost didn't go to. and. Uh, um, but I went in, and that's when she she actually requested the whole manuscript. She said, "Is it done?" And I said, "Well, I have a you know a few more weeks work on it to do." She said, "Oh, that's all right. Nothing happens in New York in the summer, so send it to me in the fall." And I said, "Okay, I could do that." Well, there was an agent there, and I I quickly went back to my room and did a little research on the agents who were there, and there was an agent there um, that. Uh, had a very good reputation. Everything I could find about her was good. And I went and talked to her, and she said, well, let me read. Uh, it, so this one's not finished. What do you have that's finished? I said, well, I have one of my books won, um, it won the contest, a contest, that, an unpublished novel contest at that writer's conference that year. And she said, well, send me that one, and I'll read that. And so she agreed to by midsummer, she agreed to represent me, and when I finished transformation, I sent it to her, and she sent it on to Penguin, and and so she's still my agent, actually. So I didn't have to query. Uh, <laughs> that is delightful. Which was nice. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, but I I took the time, and that's one reason I tell people, you know, don't trust that the first thing you finish is the best thing you'll ever do because. All during that eight years I was writing, I would, you know, I would read an article about openings, or I would read something about uh, point of view, um, something like that, and then I would go back and I'd look at everything I'd written. I said, "Oh, I did that. Oh, I did that," you know, and I would rewrite everything that I had written <laughs> to that point. So it was really a, a sort of a prolonged, self-directed, creative writing class <laughs> that I did over that time. But when people say, write a million words, I'm, I'm sure I was close to that. And I'm glad I waited, you know. So what did you say, Chad? Oh, sorry, no, I, you can overdo that um, learning, going back, rewriting thing. Um, I used to go to a writing workshop that met every six months for a weekend and everybody shared sort of the thing they were working on and, and critiqued it and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they also had a, a professional writer in over the weekend to talk to them. And I was that professional writer the first time and I enjoyed myself so much. I just kept coming back. And one of the things was there was one bloke there. He was a stamp collector and he was writing the world's great novel about stamp collecting. Oh, dear God. Yes. Um, <laughs> and um, the, 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 the first year I went, the previous writer, writerly talk they'd had had been from a guy who wrote thrillers. 
and suddenly his stamp collecting novel was about thrillers. And six <laughs> months later, I was there and I was talking about science fiction. And six months later, his science fiction, his, his stamp collecting novel was suddenly about science fiction and stamp collecting. And he did this. He was known to do this. He would completely start from the beginning and rewrite everything according to the wisdoms imparted by the previous session's writer. Yes, um, well, which is, yeah. is not a practical way of proceeding, frankly. Yes. Oh, yes, I, I agree with that. And, and that's why, I mean, over that time, I, it wasn't the same manuscripts. I wrote about nine yeah. manuscripts during those years. Yeah. And, uh, and I would, but I would go back to see how using what I had learned about point of view, because I never thought about it. I just, I just, bleh, just wrote, you know, just dumped it out. And um, it taught me about editing. It taught me about um, experimenting. It, you know, why is this character, why does, do I feel like this person is so distant from me? And one of the things I, would do, I did was I, I did a sort of an instant translation from, from uh, third person to first person, just mm -hmm. using the same language, just changing the pronouns and so forth. And... It was the most stilted, the most distanced, the most ridiculous sounding thing. You know, it wasn't natural at all. And yeah. so that little exercise. Yeah. Well, no, it's, it, ear training. You'd call it ear training in music. <laughs> no, okay. Very much. Um, yeah, it's, it's one of the exercises I came up with for when I was run, running workshops. Was, was to do exactly that, to write a piece in third person and then swap it to first person or vice versa, depending on how they'd done the original. Yeah. Um, That's a great idea. It's, it's really neat because you need to tell the story differently every time. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I'm really interested in this process you went through. I mean, it's so antithetical to my own. Mm. Um, I, I'm, I have only ever I, – I don't think I've ever specifically – sat through a workshop and sat down afterwards and thought, okay, I have learned this, this, and this. I can now apply this to things I've already written. Um, but I, I mean, I love the idea of this, this act because the world is so full of writerly advice. Yes. Um, I love it that there is at least one writer out there who's been able to take advantage <laughs> of this. And well, you know, actually, as I was doing that, there wasn't all that much. Um, no. I was still on dial-up internet in those days, but somebody would give me a copy. You know, one of my sisters would give me a copy of Writer's Digest, and I would look through it, and I would. That's where I found the article on uh, on uh, openings about things to to look for in your opening and think about when you're when you're doing an opening and. And so that's when I would take it, and I didn't. I wasn't inundated with advice because I there was there wasn't all this stuff that's out there now. And I didn't go to a writers conference and listen to a writing workshop until I had something that I thought was was good yeah. enough. And and I was right because it did. You know that was one of the three books I sold, and so. It, it wasn't, it was me thinking about the process, thinking about the writing and what makes the books, this book, that this thing that I'm writing different from books that are on my bookshelf. See, Carol, 
I was going to say, part of what I love about your writing is that you do not shy away from really the grittiest aspects of humanity. You mentioned you started the guy in jail broken, and your heroes don't come through it unscathed, and you don't fix them. I mean, they're broke along the way. You don't do anything saying, yes, I'm going to fix this all, and happily ever after, or even, you know, he gets, the the girl gets the boy, the castle, the, the gold coins. You don't do that, and no. is that a deliberate approach, and why? Um, I, once I got the idea that what the thing that I loved about writing was getting in this person's head and figuring out, no, Aiden wouldn't, he would, revenge is not what he wanted. He wanted to go hide, and it, it took a lot of prodding to get him to go and find out. Actually, he knew that someday he would have to know, but um, it took a lot of prodding to get him to do that because it was terrifying for him. Once I got into that mindset, then I I had to let the story unfold um, without me manipulating it that uh, sometimes I could sort of see what the end was was and sometimes I couldn't and I, I'm firmly I firmly believe that you can't go through the kind of traumas that you know a high adventure person can't you know a high adventure hero or heroine will engage in without being affected by it and so I, that's why my ending I like to think that my endings are hopeful yeah. um, that I leave it's not like but not everything is perfect because how could it be after, you know, after a war, after, you know, these events we've, that we've I got, put them. We've gotten out of the point of that. I mean, if you look at Shakespeare, he wrote tragedies that had tragic endings. But mm-hmm. there aren't so many authors that are brave enough to give a, yeah, they don't live happily ever after at the end of the book. Yeah. Maybe they're maybe they're together and maybe they're not, but they're both they're both the people are changed, and I like to think that they're changed in a hopeful way, and not just oh well now I'm going to go slit my throat because I've been through all this trauma, but that they found that what they've done, what they've accomplished through the story is valuable, and in that the changes that have come about haven't necessarily been easy, but that. You know, I think that they can learn to live with them or whatever. Um, I, I don't like I don't like downer endings. The you know when the books right. that I read, um, I you know I like there to be something. But a cost is you know cost is fine. Yeah. So there actually is um, a writer right now who's writes um, very good books with downer endings, which is Shauna McGuire's Wayward Children books. I just read one, and her novellas was nominated for a Hugo. Mm-hmm. And I agree, I don't like downer endings. <laughs> she writes very, very well. And and I just, and and she writes beautiful stuff. But at the end, it's like, aw, aw. I, I like the way of, you said it of hope, though. I think that is that is a good way of summing it up, that you, you take terrible people in extraordinarily bad circumstances and that they have to deal with that. And you do leave a, yeah, that I could see they could get together, you know, now I have to buy the novella to find out, you know, did they get together or. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Did they? And, and um, that's one I, I definitely left um, where, 
yeah, maybe, but but maybe not. But you knew that both of them had found their place, that they had found this is what I have to do, and and they were they were okay with that, and and so I I like that. That you know I I haven't killed off very many. I can think of two. Well, two main characters that ended up dead, but um, well, I, there I were other main characters that didn't. And <laughs> I, so I you actually have you actually have um, series that are in connect, interconnected and that kind of thing, or do you have distinct stories? Um, um, most of my series are, you know, I have uh, a four book series. The three book series that started with transformation; those worlds, those are essentially they're complete. I've not done any other books. The only world that I have gone back to is the world of flesh and spirit and breath and bone. Um, okay, yeah, it's a it's particular world that you know I love very deeply, and I realized that as after I finished it, that there were these whole aspects of that of the society and the world that I hadn't explored. Um, because the young man who's the, the the central figure of those two books is a rebel. He's sort of been running away from his family his whole life and trying to find, you know, sort of finding his place in the world kind of story. And it's an extraordinary place. And what it does is it sort of takes him far away from this, this what I thought was an interesting society. And, and so... I said, what if there was somebody who believed in this, and this is that magic was a gift from the gods, and that those who were born with magic um, had a responsibility to the world to share their gift with the world, and that they did it through this very constrained society where um, if you have, you're born into a family which has magic, and that that family then contracts their young people out to a city or to a uh, a, a prince, or to a baron or a duke or a, a merchant. They contract their children out to perform these magical services, and these so these magical families get very very wealthy, and um, they're they they don't interact and they keep themselves separate. Because their magic is a commodity, and the rarer it is, the better off they are. And so in, they believe that this is the way it's supposed to be, and they stay apart. They wear a mask over half their face to remind people that I'm not like you. I have this whole half of my life that you will never understand, you will never participate in. So... And so they're very wealthy, they're very privileged, and so forth. Well, this young man in Flesh and Spirit, he, had, he, he said this was slavery with golden chains, and that's why it had sort of driven him crazy, and he ran away, and, and we, we find out why. And I said, what if there was someone who believed in it, who really believed in this, um, that, that this was the way he was supposed to do and be, and... And that's when I wrote the Sanctuary, the two book Sanctuary duet, uh, duet um, mm-hmm. uh, Dust and Light and Ash and Silver, because I wanted to go back and explore this world from the point of view, not of somebody who believed it was corrupt and was rebelling against it, but someone who truly believed in it. And then, of course, he had a hard time, too. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, well. 
So I'm dying oh. to know in all that, you start with sketching your characters and you get into their heads. Are you more, it's sounding like you're a little bit more of a pantser, or do you plot it out? I call myself an organic story developer. Oh, I that like I that. I don't start out with a blank page and say, okay, where am I now? I, I start out, usually I start out with a particular character. Sometimes they just, you know, come to me whole cloth. Sometimes they just hint at themselves. Um, and a situation, um, where they are, when they are, and something enough about the world that I can write an opening scene. And sometimes I know a lot more about the world in our own, the, the flesh and spirit. I, knew, I had come up with some ideas about this world and about this whole system of familial magic and magic as a, a commodity that's contracted out. Um, that had just sort of come to me as I was sort of thinking, what do I, what would be something different to do with magic? And so that sort of, so I spent some time sketching out that kind of thing a little bit, but I really didn't, at first I, that was the only one I started without the character. And then I had <laughs> this image when I, 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 I had this image of a young man on the floor of an abbey church as if he's about to take holy orders and he's got his face to the wall and, and he says, what the hell am I doing here? Uh. <laughs> and so then I had to figure out what the hell he was doing there and, and who he was and, and then he sort of came to me at that point. But so I start out with that situation. So, but I, I, he actually started out in the, in the mud on a road. He was wounded, and his partner was rifling his bags. They had deserted the last army, the last uh, side in the Civil War that they thought was worth fighting for. And, and so his buddy was looting his stuff because he thought Valen was going to die and, and said, you know, it's been good hanging out with you, but I've really got to leave, and you've got to stay here in the mud. And he was outside a monastery that was a monastery downhill, and he said, they'll come and rescue you. And, and of course, that's when all the fun started. But, um, yeah. but that's what I start out with. And, and so some books, you know, I just have to I get through that first scene, and, and I, I, I say, okay, I know I need to get him here. I need to get him into the monastery and um, – where he thinks, you know, there's been, uh, you know, uh, this is sort of like a little ice age and there's uh, been famine for a couple of winters. And if he can get there and he discovers, oh, my gosh, I get, you know, a meal there. They have a fire. They have, you know, if I can figure out how to stay here, that would be pretty cool. Stay here for the winter. That would be pretty good. And so I get them there and, and I ask questions of myself along the way and say, OK, why is he here? What, where did he come from? what happened and how does that fit into this world and and so with different books you know it's a little different situation um transformation began i had this image of this heroic young character riding his horse across the steppes of central asia and i said but you know he's made what if he isn't as heroic as he looks and what if you had somebody who was this you know, he was destined for great things, but he just was totally unworthy of it. What would, what would he be like? And, and who can tell his story? Because I knew he couldn't be the, I said he'd have to change a lot to be worthy of a great destiny. You know, sometimes you have 
people who start out as the hero or heroine of a book and and you know they may be the farm boy or they may be you know this kind of you know the blacksmith or somebody but you know that if they have a great destiny they're really worthy of it and they'll those traits will come out well this time I had this person who was totally unworthy of it <clears throat> and I decided I needed someone to tell his story that he was he, he looked like he had the whole world laid out in front of him okay he was a rich guy um, okay he's he, oh I like this idea of the steps oh maybe a desert maybe he's riding across the desert and the sands curling up behind him and so maybe there's this desert empire and he's the heir to it and but that's not his destiny his real destiny is something else which I had no idea what was actually I was halfway through book three before I actually ah. knew what that was but I said he's worthy of this thing but uh, he's he's obviously got to change. He's selfish. He's callous. He's you know, uh, he's all he's never had to work for anything. And how can I make him worthy? When I said, well, somebody has to watch this change in this person. And who who could I have around him? And I said, oh, well, it would be much more fun if the person who was had to he somebody has to be around him all the time that I want to tell the story. And to observe this this change in him, and um, it, it would make it more interesting if it was someone who had no reason to like him, because yeah. that just makes a more interesting narrator. If he has to be around him and has no reason to like, oh, what if he was a slave? And that told me, okay, where I need where this story needs to begin is when these two people meet. So it's a slave market, and this prince is there to buy a slave. What's he buying a slave for? Oh, because maybe um, he needs somebody to write for him because his people who are a nomad, they were a nomadic people. They grew out of the desert clans. Um, what if uh, they didn't write? They loved horses. They knew everything about horses and fighting, but they didn't read or write because they thought, you know, I can have people to do that for me. It's not something that contributes. And, you know, it's a worthy thing, but I don't care. So he bought a slave to write for him. I love and, that all of that evolves from asking a series of questions. Yes, saying, that's have, where it comes from. I have this static, little static vision that I start with, and then I ask questions. And, and, and so I say, well, the first chapter or the first event has to be from the prince buying the slave and getting him to the slave market. So I start writing that scene, and by the end of that first chapter, I knew that the slave was more important than the prince. Yeah. I, I just from the words that came out as I was trying to write this scene, you know, this is someone observing this change. And, and uh, by the first, by the end of the first chapter, I said, this person that's, is more important. So and, which book, which novel is this one? That's Transformation. This is, and, and we're going to put links to all of the stories and books and uh, especially your, your bibliography on the website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. You can also find us on Facebook or Twitter. We answer email. Carol, if somebody has a question for you, can they write in and get you to answer it? Absolutely. Fantastic. Absolutely. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre McGaffey-Schween and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Made Milking a Cow and our exit music is Breakfast with a Morning Person, both by Michael Engberg. You can hear more from Michael Engberg on ManyHatsMusic.com. 
Our podcast sponsor is Eternally Jackal Designs, enabling you all to buy cool WSDC swag and t-shirts. And hey, thanks for listening.